and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Thus far as the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Let us go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you uh, for the ability to gather together tonight as a body of believers. Uh, we thank you for uh, your sovereign goodness that you have gathered us here this evening to hear and to study your word. And we pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would be with us during this time, that he would open our eyes uh, and our hearts to understand what you're telling us through your word. And uh, we pray that this time would glorify Christ and this time would be a time of us giving you the honor the praise and the glory that you alone deserve. And we ask also that your work in us will be done as we come to your word. And Father, I would ask uh, personally that you would guard my lips, that you would keep me speaking, uh, keep me from speaking error to your people, and speak to your people uh, through your holy and inspired word. And we ask all this all for the glory and for the honor of the Lord of the temple, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In his beautiful name we pray, amen. So, um, as we come to our text today, uh, we see Jesus in the temple during Passover. And obviously we know that the Passover is an extremely important and busy time in Israel. And in Jesus' day, every adult male living within 15 miles of Jerusalem is required to attend the Passover, and he must pay a temple tax. And there will also be uh, Jews from much further away that will make the trip to Jerusalem at Passover to participate in this celebration as well. And when they arrive, their first destination is the temple uh, to pay the tax and then to offer a sacrifice and worship to God. However, as we see from our text, when Jesus arrives, the temple does not look like a place of worship. Instead, it looks like a place of business. Inside the temple, he finds men selling animals to be sacrificed and offering a currency exchange acceptable to pay the temple tax. So Jesus, he makes a whip and drove all these businessmen and their livestock out of the temple. And the money changers, they have their coins spilled and their tables overturned. And those who are selling doves are ordered to get themselves and their birds out of the temple. And Jesus is angry. And you may read this, and you may think to yourself immediately, how can Jesus be angry? I don't like this version of Jesus. I like the gentle and lowly. I like the meek and gentle Jesus. Um, God is love, so how can Jesus, who is God, get angry? Well, genuine love is compatible with anger. And now before you disagree, let me make my defense of this statement. We must not mistake Jesus's meekness for weakness. In fact, I would argue that genuine love is sometimes demonstrated by anger. At times, righteous anger proves that love is authentic. For example, I could declare here before you all uh, my undying love for my wife Casey, but if you saw me sit back and yawn while someone was trying to hurt her, would you truly believe that I loved her? My love for, for my wife would be manifested by 
the anger that I displayed at, at what or who was attempting to harm her. So spineless love is, is hardly love at all. And Jesus' love for his father fuels his anger at the temple's corruption. And, but we also must realize Jesus, he doesn't lose control of his, temple, his temper here. He doesn't lose control of that. He's not out of control. He doesn't fly off the handle, but he is, he is angry. Yet he is in complete control of his emotions and can articulate why he is angry. And he displays his anger without sinning. And Jesus is angry because the Jews have desecrated his father's house, a house of worship. So I want us to, what I want us to look at this evening is, does God care how he is worshipped? Does God care how he is worshipped? And this problem it hasn't really changed even 2,000 years later. Our worship here on earth is so easily corrupted, isn't it? If we're all honest. How many times have we all been in church lifting your praises lifting your prayers to God and you dr- you just suddenly drift into thinking about something outside of church something outside of the worship of God and even men that stand behind this pulpit uh, pastor Henry Johnson myself included uh, these men are not immune to this uh, but again I want us all to consider this question does God care does God care how he is worshiped and to me, this is one of the most important questions that a Christian can ask and have an answer to. And after reading the last State of Theology survey that uh, Ligonier Ministries put out, I would say that the vast majority of professing Christians in our country would think that God simply does not care how he is worshipped. Most Christians think that God is open to whatever form of worship the individual prefers to offer up to him. And this was a question that, that I really began to deal with when I was still in Bible college. And our family, uh, we went to visit a church that I will not name, but that was, that was and is one of the fastest growing churches in the region. And the praise and worship, if I, it, praise and worship, if I'm being honest, it was really indistinguishable from a rock concert. And the reality is, is that, that most people at least they don't seem like that they've even given a second thought to this type of worship or to a question like this. And yet, when you walk into a church and you see certain forms of worship, or if you've been to a church where you seek absolute chaos, no order of worship, no understanding of the reality of the sacredness of what we are doing right now in this very moment. Because for the Christian who takes the Bible seriously, we know that God is not pleased with just anything and everything is he and i mean that's why we must mortify the works the deeds and the desires of the flesh right and if we must do that in our personal lives how much more important is it to understand what pleases god in a sacred place like this like the assembly of the saints and whether that's whether that's in this building whether that's at covenant whether that's in the middle of a field or in a basement church in an underground church on the other side of the world who knows no one knows they're there and again this is this is not a new issue the 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 worship that we offer up to god and god's word attests very clearly to the reality that there's nothing new under the sun there's nothing new under the sun 
And the expression of sin, it may look slightly different from one generation to the next, but the underlying symptoms, the underlying symptoms of sin that cause this, the cause of the expressions of sin are the same from one age to the next and from one culture to the next. In fact, this was very much an issue in in the Protestant Reformation. It was a, a foundational issue in the Reformation because it had everything to do um, it had everything to do with the foundational doctrine that was recovered, that was truly recovered in the Reformation, and that is the doctrine of sola scriptura. Sola scriptura, and that is the truth that in everything we do in worship, Scripture alone is our only authority. Scripture alone is our only authority, and Scripture alone must be our source of guidance. It must be our source of informing us as what is and what is not acceptable and pleasing to God. And Martin Luther, the one who really uh, got things, uh, who got things started in the, the Reformation, as much as he sought to change and to reform the church, he continued throughout his life to hold on to several views that were that were affirmed and embraced and practiced by the Roman Catholic Church. And one of those issues was, in fact, the issue of worship. And Luther's view was that the Medieval worship of the Roman Catholic tradition should be preserved, except where it is not explicitly, where it is explicitly not uh, permitted by Scripture. And of course, the worship uh, that is offered by the Roman uh, Catholic Church and that is that's permeated by the Roman Catholic tradition, uh, which even today the Roman Catholic Church to this day affirms, holds to that this uh, tradition is an equal authority. To the Bible. And of course, if you've ever been to or watched a Roman Catholic Mass, you probably know what I am talking about. You know that much of what you see and much of what you do in a Roman Catholic Mass is shaped exclusively by tradition. And most of it is not explicitly forbidden by Scripture. So, Martin Luther's view was that Christian worship can be guided by tradition as long as tradition isn't explicitly, this tradition isn't explicitly prohibited in Scripture. But opposing Luther's view was none other than John Calvin himself. So you had, you had these two Reformation giants who were very much at odds on this issue. But Calvin is the one who developed what, what came to be known as the regulative principle of worship, which is what we had adhere to as uh, Reformed Presbyterians. The regulative principle of worship, the position that our worship must be shaped by sola scriptura. Our worship must be uh, shaped and formed by scripture alone. So John Calvin's view, which is the view that would go that would go on to be embraced by the Puritans, was that acceptable worship is only that which is specifically instructed to us by God. And while Luther's view, which was the view embraced by the Anglican Church, and which is closer to what we see in so many churches today, is that anything not expressly forbidden by Scripture, it's acceptable. And as much as I love Luther and, and his impact on the Reformation, I have to say John Calvin was biblically right on the money here. And using Scripture, this is not a difficult defense to make at all. If you think about it, the first person who died in the Bible, Abel, 
Why did he die? Because his brothers Cain, his worship wasn't acceptable to God, right? And then you come to the story of Nadab and Abihu, who assumed, they assumed that God would be okay with them worshiping however they wanted. And so we read in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 2, Now now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And maybe you'll object to me by saying, like some of my friends have, um, outside of the Presbyterian church, well, why didn't God just tell us everything that he explicitly forbids? Why didn't God just tell us all these things? And I would say the answer to that is, is, well, if you would have told people in the ancient world, I forbid you from having a 50-minute laser and light show during the middle of your worship and fog machines in the middle of your worship services, or you shall not perform 10-minute long electric guitar solos in the middle of your worship, they would have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. So there are an infinite, an infinite number of, of ways to go astray in our worship. And that's the same as, for example, what is 2 plus 2? Well, obviously the answer is 4. But how many wrong answers to that question are there? It's infinite. It's infinite. So, which is why it's exactly why John Calvin would go on to say this. He said, such as our folly, that when we are left at liberty... All we are able to do is go astray. And then once we have turned aside from the right path, there is no end to our wanderings. There is no end to our wanderings. Or maybe you will say also what I've heard from some of my friends is uh, uh, so many Christians today will say, well, we're under the new covenant now. This is an age of grace. We, we're under grace. We can worship however we want based on that, can't we? And I would say... Yes, we, we are under grace, and I, and I thank God for that. There is an abundance of grace for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. But nevertheless, we do see instructions for worship even in the New Testament. The Colossian church had started to, to worship falsely. They had started to worship angels and to worship falsely, and Paul had to deal with that in the New Testament. He instructed them in Colossians 3.16. He said, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And if you want a more vivid example of God's rejection of worship that is not presented as he, is, as he instructed, then there is probably no better uh, New Testament passage to turn to than the passage that we find ourselves in this evening here in John 2. And today we're going to be looking at the first of two occasions in which our Lord Jesus went into the temple in Jerusalem and caused a stir, to say the least. He overturned tables. He ran people out. And at this point in his ministry, Jesus, he only has a a small handful of disciples, and his earthly ministry is only now beginning. But he would come back at the end of his ministry and do the same thing again. So we should see this as something of a warning from Jesus, a warning about what was going to come 
in AD 70 if they did not change their ways, and obviously they did not. And what happened in the year AD 70? The destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And again, Jesus comes back at the end of his ministry to do this again. And he would finalize this judgment at the end of his ministry. And there are liberal scholars and commentators who think that John is wrong here in his telling of the events. They think that Jesus did not cleanse the temple twice, but that John falsely reported that this happened at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. For example, William Barclay says in his commentary, he says, John is more interested in the truth than in facts. Figure that one out. As if there is a difference between what is true and what is factual. Uh, Or Chuck Swindoll brushes this off by saying, John is just trying to present themes here. He's, He's more interested in presenting themes than he is in giving us a historically accurate depiction of what happened. But my question to you all is this. What does a straightforward, plain, simple reading of Scripture lead us to believe? And I would say it very, very clearly leads us to believe that Jesus cleanses the temple on two separate occasions. Once here at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end of his ministry that we read of in Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 13. Which is the exact fulfillment of what is described in Leviticus chapter 14, verses 33 through 53, which I strongly encourage you all to read on your own time. But Leviticus tells us in chapter 14 that a priest would make two visits to a diseased house some days apart. And if he, when he came back at a later day, if he found that the house was still unclean, then he would call for the total destruction of that house, which is what Jesus did. And this and, and said what happened and ultimately happened in the destruction of the temple in AD 70. So, again, I strongly encourage you to look at that. I wish we could unpack it more from Leviticus 14, but I strongly encourage you to look at that and the fulfillment of this in your own personal study time. I love the intricacy and the fulfillment of all that Scripture is from the Old to the New Testament. But as I said, I, I do believe that Scripture is clear that these events happened in this sequence just the way John told us, and in this order. But I also believe that there's a reason that God wanted this to happen in this order. And in the opening verses of chapter 2 of John's gospel, at the wedding, Jesus turns water into wine, showing us his ability to fill us with joy. But in this sign that we see today, Jesus shows his holy wrath and his righteous indignation towards that which steals godly joy from us and steals the rightful glory from God. So we will see that the point of this passage is that as the Lord of the temple, as the Lord of the temple, Jesus has the authority to determine what is and what is not acceptable within it. So to come back to our text, the pilgrims, they've, they've traveled from distance, distant lands and they travel obviously to Jerusalem for the Passover. And when they came Again, they were required to present sacrifices, and and there was a stipulation for such instances. Uh, When it wasn't very practical for someone to bring their offering or their sacrifice over the course of of a long journey where the Israelites were instructed to do this in this way, Deuteronomy 14, 24 through 25 says this, And if the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe, when the Lord your God blesses you, because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses, to set his name there, 
Then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses. So that's what people would do. They wanted to present sacrifices as they were commanded to do. But if they had several weeks or maybe a month of traveling, it wasn't practical for them to bring their sacrifices and offerings with them over this long journey. So what they would do is they would sell their sacrifices back home, take the money, go to Jerusalem and buy a sacrifice and present their sacrifice because, again, uh, these people were traveling from so far away. So they would come with their foreign currencies, which they could use and use that currency for animals, which would uh, was also, by the way, set up in a place called the court of the Gentiles. This was all set up in the court of the Gentiles. How convenient is that? And they had this area where they would set up the tables, not only to sell their sacrifices to the people, but also where they could exchange their foreign currencies. And well, this might look convenient, but it's not very convenient for the Gentiles because it left them with no place to worship God. It left them with no place to go to worship God. And on top of the sacrifices, the temple would only take local currency. And so the money changers would be set up conveniently to exchange these currencies, but of course they would do that at an excessive rate. So they were like loan sharks, basically. And so why was Jesus so indignant? Why was he so angry? And to answer that question, we, might, uh, we must understand what the purpose of the temple was. It was supposed to be a place of worshiping God, but all of life is also supposed to be lived in a way that is really an act of worship unto God, isn't it? And it is for absolutely everyone, believer and non-believer alike. We all worship something. Listen to what Romans one twenty five says. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and did what? They worshipped. They worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So every one of us worships um, something or someone. So it's not enough to, to say that this was just a place of worship. It's not enough to say that. We must clarify. We must clarify that this was a place to worship God rightly in the manner that he had instructed that he had instructed. It wasn't to be ran like a marketplace. The temple was a place that is sacred. It was set apart, and it is to be treated differently than the marketplace. And if you read the detailed instructions about the insides of the temple and outside of the temple, um, you'll need to understand that everything about the temple was holy. It was all sacred, and it all ultimately pointed to Christ. There was absolutely nothing that was placed in the sanctuary, nothing that was allowed in the sanctuary that, was, that reminded people or pointed people back to the world. It was all sacred. There was to be no distractions, nothing that could even potentially draw one's attention away from God and the worship of God. And what we see here is Jesus comes to the temple in Jerusalem and we see that the world had invaded the temple. The world had invaded the temple. It's, it's a good thing for the world when we as Christians go out into it. But it is a very, very dangerous thing when the world comes into the church. And we see that the world has invaded the temple here in Jerusalem. And at this point, it is not a place of worship. As Jesus sees, it, as Jesus sees this, it had became a place of commerce. It had became a, a marketplace. And it had become 
indistinguishable from the marketplace, a place where per people could go and turn a hefty profit on a captured audience. It had become entirely about um, other than the very purpose for which it had been created. And friends, uh, we, if we're being honest, we see this happening in our own day and age, don't we? Instead of being devoted to serving and to worshiping God in accordance with biblical principles, churches in our time have devoted to all kinds of crazy things. And first and foremost, I think that one of the biggest problems that the modern church faces is the practice of pragmatism. Pragmatism. If you're not sure what pragmatism is, it's pragmatism uh, is just doing whatever works. Just do whatever works. Whatever it takes to solve your problem, to cause your business to thrive. And when you apply that to business, that's, that's perfectly fine. You can sort of say, what does it take to get 8 billion, 8 billion people to buy your product? So you figure out what it takes and you do it 8 billion times. However, we cannot, we cannot apply the same principle to the church. We cannot take the mentality that we will do whatever it takes to draw people in. See, the message of the temple is the same message of the church that the church has today. And that, that message is that the most important thing a person can do is submit to God and enter a redemptive relationship with him. But the temple's purpose was to bring those people into right standing with God. And if you study the history of, of Israel throughout the Old Testament, you see that whenever this was the preserved purpose of the temple, whenever you see that this was upheld, the people of Israel would be faithful and their lives were blessed and all was well. But as the worship in the temple was corrupted, these blessings began to be removed. And there was a ripple effect. There was a ripple effect throughout all of Israelite society and it happens over and over and over again and there comes a time uh, where they get taken into, into captivity by surrounding nations and God sends a judge and they, then they come back to God and then everything's well but before you know it they're right back to square one straying away from God so it's, it's a cycle that repeats over and over and over for generations and you see, that, see, see this throughout the book of Judges and we see this throughout the Old Testament as well. And if you look at the, the history of the world over the course of the last 2,000 years, you'll see the same principle applies to the church. When the church is faithful, when the church is faithful, society does well. When the church gets corrupted, society doesn't do so well. So, where is our culture right now? Look at all of the worldly ideologies that have invaded the church at large in our culture. And pragmatism, again, it's the big one. That's the big one. Um, pragmatism has kind of been like the doorstop that has propped the door open, allowing all of these other worldly ideologies to creep in, to come in. Because once you have the idea that you will do anything at all to draw people in, where do you draw the line? Where do you draw the line at? So you start asking, well, okay, <clears throat> excuse me. What's, what's it going to take to draw people into this church? What's it going to take? And the thought is, as well, let's make sure that we don't drive them away by offending them. We surely don't want to offend them. So let's make our, our, our sermon shorter and let's let them resemble pep talks. Ten ways to live your best life now. That doesn't mention things like sin. That doesn't mention repentance. 
And surely do not mention God's wrath or his sovereignty. Don't mention those things. But eventually what happens is, is the world it begins to get bored with that. And then they stop coming. And the idea is, is that whatever works, whatever works, we will embrace it. And we will practice it so that people will find it and find our church appealing. However, the temple, just like the church, was designated, is designated. It was set apart by God. It was sacred and to be a place of sacred worship. But it was also a place, to be a place that called people into right standing with God and kept people in right standing with God. And what Jesus sees as he comes into this temple in Jerusalem is that this temple has become something other than a place of worship. Something else has came in. And by the temple allowing this other thing, this worldly ideology to creep in, they're preventing people from coming to the true and living God. And friends, in a day and age when pragmatism is the name of the game for so many churches, for so many churches, that's what the whole mega church model is built on. When the church loses sight of her primary calling and adapts to a business mindset, a worldly business mindset over a mindset of reverent worship and faithfulness to her calling, we cannot take, we must not take an anything goes, whatever works approach to our worship. We cannot do that. We must maintain our priorities. And we must keep our messages pure and in line with Scripture. Rather than using the church's resources and blessings in a way that pleases God, many in our day and age have taken our blessings for granted. And we use what, what has been given to us, what has been entrusted to us, Instead, we use that for selfish gain. And that's, that's the very same thing that Jesus is responding to here in this passage in John. And you see, what we do when we gather to worship, what we do on Sunday, it reveals a lot about what we think about God. And what message does the church send to the world when the church does not try to look like the world? What message are we sending? It sends the message that pleasing God is more important than pleasing man. That we are more eager, more interested in gaining God's approval than we are in gaining man's approval. R.C. Sproul said this, The greatest weakness in the church today is that the servants of God keep looking over their shoulder for the approval of men. We must not do this. We must not adopt this mindset. But when the church fulfills her calling and urges all who are listening to repent, to believe in Christ, we show that we believe in a God who is offended by sin, but offers mercy and offers grace and forgiveness and cleansing for all who will come to Christ. The church sends a message that God is a God who listens and a God who cares and who comforts and who does not and will not abandon us. And John goes on to tell us that, that Jesus made a scourge. He made a scourge, a short whip of cords, and he used them to drive the people from the temple, to cleanse the temple. He doesn't hurt anyone here. There's no mention or reason to believe that Jesus hurt anyone here. Rather, they were scared. They were scared. And, and, and let's again, let's be sure that we understand Jesus. He's not just having 
a temper tantrum here. Even though we know that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, his flesh never influenced him to act in a way that did not please God. So we must understand again that this is not just a spur of the moment outburst of anger, but this is a picture of the just and holy wrath of God. This is a picture of the just and holy wrath of God against anything that would defile or anything that would distract at the temple. But they were so afraid that they ran from him. They ran from Jesus. And he drove them away. He did did not physically hurt them. But if you think about it, if you think about what Jesus did, what love and what grace was this that he would do this? What mercy is this that he would do this if you consider how God dealt with those who defiled his temple before like Nadab and Abihu that I read to you, or Cain. How did God deal with these people? And we can see that these people here in John chapter 2 who get ran off by Jesus, they're fortunate. They're fortunate because they're blessed to be leaving with their lives. And Jesus drives this, uh, and as Jesus drives this worldly ideology out of the temple, his disciples remember something. They remember Psalm 69, 9, which says, Zeal for your house has consumed me. Zeal for your house has consumed me. And they remember, as we would be wise to remember with them, Jesus doesn't just have a zeal for worship. It's not just for worship, but that he has a zeal for pure and undefiled worship. Pure and undefiled worship. For obedient and for reverent worship. And this passage, again, it's not saying that we can't in the church raise money for good and godly things and, or for like missions or for the expansion of God's kingdom, but we should do all of these things in a, in a clear and reverent way and not in a way that potentially distracts, distracts us from things like reverent prayer, singing with joy and thanksgiving in our hearts and confessing, coming here to confess our sins before God, to be convicted and corrected through God's word the edifying and the sanctifying of us through god's word and anything that distracts us or inhibits us from these things these things should be removed they should be removed and we must never let church our worship become something that you view as optional this is not optional as a christian especially and i say this as as a parent but especially if as a parent we all have a to-do list, we, whether it's physical or just in our minds. We all have a list of things, of pressing things that we think needs to be done, that has to be done. And once we start viewing these things in our mind, things get sh- shuffled around. And we sort of uh, prioritize these things. And if you, again, are a parent, you know that so many things that our children learn are not things that we tell them as much as we'd like for that to be the case. It's things that you show them. And knowingly or unknowingly, uh, I can tell you with kids, things are caught rather than taught. Our children learn by watching the example that we set for them. And if the Christian life is, is all about becoming more like Christ, and it is, should we not also um, exemplify this to our children in our own household? Should we not also, as we become more like Christ, grow and increase in our zeal for pure, 
for pure and undefiled, obedient and reverent worship according to God's word. See, the, the danger that every single one of us face is to see Sunday service as, as being no different from worship that we engage in in other times throughout the week. Like maybe in your personal uh, Bible study time or driving in your car and you hear um, a spiritual hymn that comes on and your heart gets stirred up within you. We've all been there. And, and if you take the mindset that there's no difference between that and what happens here on Sunday morning and Sunday evenings, you start you begin to start seeing your Sunday worship as something that's peripheral in life, something that's optional. And when the Sunday gathering, the Lord's Day is supposed to be immovable for your life. Everything else is based around this. And once you start seeing it as something that you can do with or without, let me warn you, you are in a very, very dangerous place. And we might not say it, but we start living with our time, we start living with our blessings, our relationships, every resource that we have in this way. And let me ask you this. Are we <clears throat> using these resources in a way, using our time that pleases and glorifies God according to his word? Or are you using your resources and your blessings to suit your own needs and to suit your own purposes? Do you look at Sunday truly as the Lord's day? Or do you look at it as just another day off? And there's a reason why that the Puritans called it the Lord's Day. They understood that every day was the Lord's Day. Uh, so why did they call Sunday the Lord's Day? Because they understood that something special, something different, something sacred was happening as we gather for worship on the Lord's Day. The word worship is derived from the word worth-ship. Worth-ship. So whenever we examine our worship, we must ask ourselves about the worship of God to us. What is God worth to us? What is God worth to us? And by cleansing the temple, Jesus was sending the message that God is worth reverent, obedient, pure, and undefiled devotion and worship. God is worth all of those things and then some. In Christ, he has given us a mission as, as church, as a church, and a, eternal souls are at stake. He has entrusted us with a great responsibility to demonstrate the power and the glory of God to change us from wretched rebels into joyfully obedient worshipers. And this is the greatest need of the hour for the church at large. I would say that. But it starts with us. It starts with Christians at an individual level. But I think it's, it's worth ask, us asking all of ourselves and being honest with ourselves. Is there anything in your life, is there anything in your life that's preventing you from offering pure and undefiled worship unto God Sunday in and Sunday out? Is there any area of your life that you have not brought under Christ's rightful lordship and authority. The great Dutch Reformed theologian Abraham Kuyper said this, There is not a square inch in the whole creation over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. And there is not a square inch in the whole domain of over human existence which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. We've all 
been tempted to, to bring worldly distractions or ideologies with us into church, but know this, even with that, even if we have committed that sin, there's grace. There's grace in Christ. We're all tempted in the same ways, but there's grace in Christ Jesus. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, the Lord Jesus who is faithful and who is just will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Even coming into this house, coming into his house with worldly distractions in our mind. What a beautiful promise this is. Grace in Christ. To live by a promise of grace. A promise of, of cleansing for everyone. Unlimited cleansing in Christ. For those who will repent, who for those who will repent and confess their sin, and set their heart and set your mind on Christ rightly again. So many churches, even in the Reformed uh, and Presbyterian denominations and other churches across the nation, we see these worldly ideologies creeping in, and this can only be seen as God's judgment. It's God's judgment. Why? Have you ever asked yourself, why is there so much confusion in the church? Why is there so much division? Why is there so much strife? What happened to the influence that the church had over the culture? What happened to that? And it can all be traced back to the church giving sway to worldly methods and worldly ideologies, making a little compromise here and a little compromise there. But let me assure you this. I can assure you this. The church cannot win the world with its own ideas. It will not win the world with its own ideas. The world gets bored rather quickly with its own ideas. And the church will not influence the culture by virtue signaling, by encouraging Christians to do the very same thing that the mainstream media and social media is constantly encouraging us to do. We will not win the world using these tactics. No, the church's greatest need is the need that Jesus is addressing here in the temple. And that need is the need to be cleansed of worldliness. So, I encourage us all, let us pray steadfastly for revival. And that all of the churches in our region, in the nation, in the world would repent from these worldly ideologies that have crept in and reform their doctrine to that of Scripture. And that Christ would be greatly glorified in that reformation. And our collective response as a church, it, it must be to examine ourselves. It starts on the individual level at first. And to, again, to repent of anything unholy. Anything that's distracting us. Anything defiling. And to pray that we, even if it means we stand alone. To pray that we would remain steadfastly fixed on the mission that Christ has entrusted us with. And that is proclaiming the gospel in order that men and women would, would be brought into faithful fellowship with the living and the true God. And that we would demonstrate the power and the glory of Christ and our redemption, his power to redeem us, his power to cleanse us, his power to fill us and to change us. And as a gathering of people who have been set apart from the world and do all of this for the honor, for the glory and for the pure worship of the Lord of the temple, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us go to him in prayer.
Our most gracious and heavenly Father, we come before you asking as a body of believers that you would forgive us and keep us from anything that may be causing us to perform a genuine examination of our hearts before you. Father, we, we cry out, we plead to you that you would show us anything wrong that's in our lives and in our worship of you and help us to confess and to yield to everything that displeases you, that you have uh, so gracefully and graciously revealed to us in Scripture. And may we be honest in that self-examination according to your word and to be honest as we repent so that our worship would be in accordance to your word and not what the world's ideologies are. Father, we ask that you would forgive us. God, cleanse us, wash us, and make us white as snow. Father, we want your approval. We want the joy of obedience according to your word, not our own. And give us that honesty of the heart that protects us from your divine discipline. Open our hearts and show us what we need to surrender to you, what we need to let go of and confess that we might honor you even as we worship you. And we ask all these things in Jesus Christ's most holy and beautiful name. Amen.